are listening to the Patriot Pastors Podcast, where we talk about today's issues from a pastor's perspective, as well as calling America back to the faith of our fathers. Pastors Wade Lentz and Harold Smith are your hosts, and now let's get started. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Patriot Pastors Podcast. I'm Wade Lentz, and I'm joined with my friend, Harold Smith. Harold, you know, normally we do this and we're on a Zoom call, but today you are with me, next, we next are, to me. We are in the church library at the great establishment, <laughs> Barrel Baptist Church in Bologna, Arkansas. And uh, it's good to be with you, Wade. I really enjoy our podcast, but I enjoy it even better when we can get together. And um, yes. and have have face to face fellowship. You can't have church online, right? You right. got to be in person. And and true fellowship don't take place looking at a computer screen. It takes place when you're literally within arm's reach. And uh, we didn't greet one another with a holy kiss. We are twenty first <laughs> century Christians. We shook hands. So uh, who we got with us? Well, we have a guest host with us who is. Pastor of Second Baptist Church in Perryville, Arkansas, Alan Nelson, the fourth with us. And uh, Alan, we're glad you're here joining us today. Well, it's good to be with you. And I'll, I'll be honest, we're really close right now. Yes, so, we are very close. <laughs> closer right now. than maybe I'm comfortable with. But Dr. Fauci <laughs> would not be, uh, he would not approve of this right now. It's really good to be with you guys in the big city of Valonia. Well, I'm glad that you're here. Have y'all heard that uh, Beth Moore has departed the SBC? Y'all heard that? Who is that now? Well, um, I think we all know who Beth Moore is, especially if you've been in the SBC. Um, but she made a statement, I believe, a couple of days ago. This is what she said. She said, I'm still a Baptist, but I can no longer identify with Southern Baptist. She said, I loved so many Southern Baptist people, so many uh, Southern Baptist churches, but I don't identify with some of the things in our heritage that haven't remained in the past. Now, what do you what do you take from that statement? I haven't. Uh, uh, I the don't, heritage part. I don't think it's the heritage she disagrees with. I think it's the doctrine she disagrees with, and uh, I think what she's trying to establish is that historically she wouldn't have been a Baptist, but she wants to be one in the twenty first century because we've really broadened out as Baptist over the years. And I think what she's hoping for is the Southern Baptist to broaden out so that she can still stay under the umbrella. Mm -hmm. But if you get an umbrella big enough to let Beth Moore teach under it, you will cease to be historically what Southern Baptists were. What do you think, Alan? You've got a look on your face like, (laughs) let me in there, preacher. Well, here's the thing. First and foremost, let's say this. If someone leaves your church uh, because they, they have departed from sound doctrine, that's not something to celebrate. I mean, it, it breaks your heart as a pastor. And, and so in one sense, I think that I feel that way. Um, I'm not, I'm not rejoicing, you know, that, that she's left the Southern Baptist convention. However, uh, in, in one sense, if she's not going to, that's in my opinion, she needs to repent. She hadn't been Southern Baptist doctrinally, in my opinion, for, uh, I don't know how long you want to say it. I'll tell you this story real quick. In 2008, I was a youth pastor in Kentucky. I was going to Southern. Didn't I, I didn't know what to teach the youth. I was new. I didn't know. So I went into Lifeway. I went to the youth section. Here's a study on David by Beth Moore. You know? yeah. And so uh, I guess that was probably one of my first introductions. But um, since then, I kind of learned some things. And, and she uh, she's not been a Southern Baptist for a few years. I'd rather she repent. 
you know how awesome it would be for her to repent and say, you know what, I've been preaching uh, and to men that's wrong. The scriptures, it's wrong. I shouldn't do that. I've been saying that God speaks to me directly. I've been partnering with Joyce Meyer. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'd rather that happen. Right, right. But since she's not going to do that, in my opinion, it's much better. Go ahead and separate because his, you're not, and, and what this is framed around, this is what her statement is. It's framed around racism and misogyny. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what it's trying to say. She's trying to say Southern Baptists are misogynist and racist, and I'm not going to be a part of that. That's pitiful. But that's a horrible frame and it's a horrible picture to paint your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It is. Mm-hmm. Instead of just admit, guys, I don't agree with the Baptist faith and message. That's what she should have said. And you're right. She should be the one to have to repent. But if you notice J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, what he said, in essence, is that we should be the ones who should repent, who should, and I quote, we should lament and rededicate ourselves to the Great Commission, being the way that she has been treated and not being felt welcomed, um, among other things, and so that that just shows you the uh, the the problems within the leadership of the SBC that does not call her out on her sin, but then kind of turns it around to us, you know, as if we should be the ones who are lamenting because we've lost such an encouragement to the body of Christ. So, well, he uh, the the problem is that he thinks that, uh, and, and several other things that our unity in the SBC is around the gospel. Now it is around the gospel. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's around the gospel, but we also have this document called the Baptist faith and message 2000. And right. we have agreed to partner within those parameters. That's mm-hmm. what we've agreed to partner with. Yes. And so, um, yes, there's unity around the gospel, but that's why we don't say Presbyterians are in the Southern Baptist convention. I have learned and I have friends who are Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for those brothers and sisters in the Lord. But we choose not to partner with them in the Southern Baptist Convention in this way because they don't align with the Baptist faith and message. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, look, when someone leaves your church, should you do some introspection? Sure. But JD, like you said, he puts the emphasis uh, wrongly. That, right, right. Um, so anyway. Hey, let's talk about somebody that is still in the Southern Baptist Convention. I would say one of my favorite Southern Baptists, actually, Mike Stone, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia, has also joined us on the podcast today. We've interviewed him in the past, and we've got some really good feedback, and we just wanted to have a few follow-up questions and, and talk about what's going on in his life. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Man, it's a privilege to be with you guys. I, I want to take just a moment real quick and dovetail into something you guys were just talking about. And it reminded me of a, of a story that happened in my ministry early on. I'd been pastoring, I guess, three or four years and I started preaching through the book of the Revelation. And when I dealt with those churches, you know, the seven letters to the seven churches, uh, you can view those churches, uh, you know, historically as actual little churches, which they were. But they also represent some different church uh, periods in church history. And because of that, for several weeks, I, I addressed some issues related to Roman Catholicism and what we would believe to be the false doctrine coming out of that religious movement. And I started getting some nasty grounds from uh, a family in our church. And I reached out to a mentor of mine, an older pastor, and I said, I've got a problem with some former Catholics in my church. And, uh, you know, as I'm addressing these issues, you know, the sinfulness of Mary, 
the fallibility of the Pope, all these, all these different things that we would address if we were dealing with uh, the error of, of Catholic dogma. And I said, I've got, I've got these, these former Catholics in my church, and they're giving me a little grief, and give me some wisdom as to how to deal with it. It was the first time I'd faced opposition, open opposition from uh, some church members like that. And he said to me, he said, well, I, I, first of all, I need to correct your question and properly diagnose your problem. You don't have former Catholics in your mm-hmm. church. You have some current Catholics who have somehow made it into the membership of your church. And when they leave, they are going to leave. Just understand they didn't really leave because they were never really with you. Uh, I quickly pointed out that I inherited them as members from my predecessor. So I lay it all at his feet uh, and his inability to properly screen members. <laughs> I, I, I share that my, my predecessor is my closest pastor friend. But uh, it's, it's just a reminder that when people leave, it, for pastors and shepherds, it is always a grievous thing. Alan, I appreciate uh, your your comments in that regard. Uh, I don't think we should ever have a an attitude that says, don't let the door hit you on the way out, uh, whether it's uh, people leaving our congregation or people or churches uh, leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. It should be a grievous thing. It should be a time for uh, self-examination. You know, is there something we said or did? But at the end of the day, most people leave the fellowship of other churches because they do not believe what that church or fellowship of churches believes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in the present case, there's some troubling doctrines and uh, things that have uh, taken place uh, with Ms. Moore for some time. I'm not angry with her, not mad at her. Uh, I wish her nothing but the best. Uh, but uh, I do think she left Southern Baptist, uh, conservative Southern Baptist doctrine some time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, the, the first interview that we did with you, uh, we just received a lot of positive feedback. People who were not familiar with you uh, contacted us and like, hey, that was that was very encouraging to hear someone who's been nominated for the office of president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they wanted to know more about you. And so, anyways, what we what we did was we collected a few follow-up questions we want to go through. And you don't have to spend a whole lot of time on these, but one of them was what is your favorite part about the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, there are challenges and opportunities, of course, facing our convention, but uh, I would remind your listeners that I was not raised Southern Baptist. I was raised in a Pentecostal denomination and after high school chose to become a Southern Baptist by by my own choice and conviction. And a couple of the things that really led me to be Southern Baptist, uh, I still have a high appreciation level for today. Uh, That is, uh, first of all, our doctrinal positions. Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message, which has been amended a few times since I became a Southern Baptist, but also the cooperative program. Uh, I still believe with all of its flaws, any organization of any size has what we would call some waste. And uh, years ago, it was called bloated bureaucracy, and we still have some bureaucracy. Uh, but um, the cooperative program remains the greatest financial vehicle to take the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. Uh, it 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 is, a, it is a picture of how we work together and believe we can accomplish more working together than we can individually, uh, whether that's working through the associations, through uh, state or our national convention. The ability to give to uh, through the cooperative program helps us train seminarians, uh, hundreds, thousands of them right now being trained uh, to be pastors and other leaders in the Lord's church. Uh, thousands of missionaries that are supported here in America and around the world. So our conservative Bible doctrine 
and our belief in cooperation as manifested through the cooperative program. Those are the things that uh, led me and uh, now keep me being a Southern Baptist. And uh, I'm grateful for those things. I'm going to try to change the topic just a little bit. Um, you know, with the current administration, the current uh, Biden administration, I have a twofold question for you. Uh, where do you see the future of religious freedom in America? And how should churches, how should pastors prepare the churches for what's coming? Well, I'm not a doomsday person. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Uh, but at the same time, I'm a realist. And I believe the American church specifically is headed for persecution. And by persecution, I think we need to rightly define that because when, uh, when the clerk at Walmart stops saying Merry Christmas, but they say Happy Holidays, that, that may be something we lament, but we can hardly call that persecution, especially in the light of uh, martyrdom that has existed through the centuries and still exists today with our brothers and sisters around the world. But I do believe we are headed for what could rightly be defined and characterized as persecution. I, I would hasten to say I don't think that's all necessarily a bad thing. You look in church history uh, and around the world today, persecution has a purifying effect. Uh, we can see that with something as simple as the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. The more inconvenient that it is, the more potentially costly it is to be involved in serving the Lord, you see false converts begin to drop away. So I think anytime you have challenges, uh, uh, persecution or other challenges, there's a purifying effect. Jesus said in Matthew 5:10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I've told my church preaching on this subject that the only way that we won't face persecution by the same kind of world that nailed Jesus to a cross is if we stop teaching what he taught and saying what he said and doing what the Lord Jesus did. So I do think persecution is coming. Now, you mentioned the uh, the current administration. I think persecution is going to hit uh, exponentially with the passage of the Equality Act, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is mislabeled. Uh, if it's not the Equality Act, it'll be something very similar to it that will become the law of the land. Oh, yeah. If not during this administration, uh, perhaps uh, in the next one. One of the interesting things to me is that candidate Biden campaigned and said that this would be a priority within his first 100 days. And there's some people who supported him then as a candidate, either yeah. verbally or perhaps by their silence, their unwillingness to speak out in opposition to him. And sure. now all of a sudden they're acting surprised. Yeah. Uh, that he's actually doing uh, what he said that he would do. That's crazy. But crazy. Um, but LGBT issues are going to be put on the same level as other civil rights issues, which mm -hmm. uh, frankly ought to make our non-Anglo brothers and sisters righteously indignant uh, that an immutable God-given trait, uh, the color of their skin, the, the gender that we have is being equated with uh, sexual perversion. And sadly, we don't have a lot of... Um, uh, American evangelical leaders that seem to understand the role uh, of the limitation of government biblically. So this is kind of getting to the second part of your question. What can we as pastors and leaders in a local church context do? Uh, for one thing, we, we need sound biblical teaching about the church, uh, what the church is and what the church does. Harold, you mentioned a few moments ago, one thing the church cannot do online is gather together. We can teach online, we can give the offering online, but we cannot gather together in fellowship and ultimately be the church uh, online. So I think we need sound teaching about what the church mm -hmm. is. Yeah. And uh, secondly, sound biblical teaching about the role of government. Mm -hmm. um, 
I found it interesting a few weeks ago when the Supreme Court handed down a decision about uh, governmental restrictions against churches out in the state of California. Uh, our own uh, national leaders applauded the decision, which included ongoing restrictions against singing. And uh, I shared yeah. with my church that uh, singing is a biblical command, and the yeah. government in every way is overstepping its bounds to tell me that I cannot and must not do something that the God who redeemed me has commanded me to do. Amen. I told my church, don't don't read those decisions. Read, read the old hymn writer who said, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. Mm. And uh, so we, yeah. we need sound teaching about the church, sound teaching about the role of government. And if, if I could just quickly add one other thing, what I see is the, the biblical pattern. There are a lot of leaders who say that our pattern is to always submit to the government and do what they tell us to do or not do what they prohibit. The biblical pattern that I see, uh, going back to the Old Testament, whether you're talking about the three Hebrews, Daniel, if you're talking about the New Testament apostles before the Sanhedrin, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, they, they did not simply abide by governmental restrictions. They, they said, you, you decide what you want to say, but we're going to obey God and not men. Mm -hmm. They submitted to the government in that they submitted themselves, even their physical bodies, to the consequences that the government enacted. Yes. And uh, we, we've got a lot of people today, I have some, no doubt, in my church, um, that, that man, they'll, they may put a bumper sticker on their car that they're willing to go to jail for Jesus, but some of them won't even go to Sunday school mm -hmm. for Jesus, let alone go to prison. Mm -hmm. We don't require orange jumpsuits. <laughs> that's uh, that's for, not for, a Georgia thing. That, that occurs <laughs> uh, nationwide. And you, you think you're going to stand in the face of persecution. You don't even come back on Sunday night if the Braves go into extra innings. I mean, come on. So uh, I, I think... Uh, wrapping up the the answer, though, I think we 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 need to prepare our people with sound teaching about what the church is and what the church does, and sound doctrinal preaching about the proper role of government and our response to it as Christian citizens. Very good, very good. All right, now it's no secret that you've been nominated for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mentioned that already. Mm -hmm. And aside from you winning the presidency and the vote. Um, what would it take for you to consider, or what would you consider to be a positive meeting at the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville this June? What would that look like? What are some things you're hoping to happen other than you, you know, ultimately winning the presidency? Well, I appreciate that caveat because with all uh, sincerity, I do believe that my election as president, as well as the election of uh, two men that I'm supporting for vice presidential roles in the SBC, we have two vice presidents, and I have given my support to Dr. Lee Brand, who is on the faculty and administration at Mid-America uh, Baptist Theological Seminary there in Memphis. Dr. Lee Brand uh, will stand for nomination as first vice president, and Dr. Javier Chavez, who is just a stalwart, uh, just a class act leader among uh, the Spanish-speaking peoples of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, he's a pastor here in Georgia. Dr. Javier Chavez will be nominated, and I pray will be elected to serve as second uh, vice president. So uh, the election of officers, of course, will be a real watershed kind of hallmark because of what I think that represents, a greater involvement and engagement of, of average, ordinary, uh, grassroots Southern Baptists. I actually have in my mind, just personally, a desire to see at least 12,000 messengers uh, who gather in Nashville this June. Uh, there's some pre-convention stuff that starts on June the 13th 
and continues through the convention, which is actually June 15 and 16. But with 47,000 churches, each of them getting a minimum of two messengers that they can send, and you can qualify for up to 12, uh, even in uh, more recent controversial conventions, we have 8,500 to 9,000 messengers. So uh, I'd love to see more people involved. I'd, I'd personally love for it to be more than 12,000, but I think 12,000 would be a significant percentage increase uh, over recent years. So that's, that's another thing that I think would measure success just because it's marked by greater involvement uh, of, of uh, Southern Baptists. Uh, on the agenda, I would love to see a, some type of rejection of Resolution 9. Uh, there's debate as to whether or not we can officially rescind Resolution 9, the critical race theory intersectionality resolution that was passed in Birmingham. Uh, I think a better approach would be that a resolution be offered a new resolution that addresses the faulty, uh, the faultiness of Resolution 9 and, and makes a clear statement about what we as Southern Baptists believe uh, about critical race theory, intersectionality, standpoint hermeneutics, and and these other expressions of, uh, of critical race theory and intersectionality. If we can accomplish those things, uh, I would think that the SBC annual meeting would be a success. Uh, the last thing that I would mention is at some measure and some form or uh, process, we need a call for greater accountability, transparency uh, related to the selection and action of trustees for our various entities. I believe in many ways the trustee system, if it's not broken, it has some very serious uh, flaws uh, that need to be addressed. And those are some of the things I'd love to see happen in Nashville. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm just going to jump into this question then because you were talking about the trustees and uh, how do we, how do we improve that, Mike? What, what is our, what, as a convention, how do we how do we make that better? Well, it's one reason that I think the election of presidents is a, is a very important part of that, because the best trustee system with the best trustee training uh, will not be ultimately effective if you don't have uh, the the right people uh, who are in those positions. And when I say the right people, I don't mean that any current trustees are are. Uh, ungodly men or women or that they are unethical or that they are seeking uh, self-promotion or self-benefit. But it is to say, if you look at um, the nomination process and the way that that works, there are too many instances where the trustee system is working for the benefit of the trustees, for fellow trustees, or for the entity head, mm -hmm. and uh, not in the best interest of that entity or of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I, I don't want to uh, be needlessly caustic, but, but I also don't want to just paint with broad brushes and not be able to mention some specifics. Uh, for example, the, the failed CEO of Lifeway literally uh, walked away with a $1 million departure package, even though the company had been led to the point of near financial ruin, mm -hmm. selling wow. off some of the most precious assets uh, Ridgecrest, for example, mm -hmm. having to sell a multi-million dollar building in Nashville that's only a few years old and uh, closing down all of our brick and mortar stores. Uh, these are not the kind of leadership decisions that should result in a $1 million seven-figure uh, package uh, as you move off into a supposed retirement. And uh, that's not personal to me, but I think in, in leadership like that, a leader should be replaced, uh, right. not uh, not given that kind of uh, package. And 
And part of the challenge is that that arrangement was approved by one person. And, and I've talked to people real close to that situation. And uh, the explanation has been given that nothing unethical happened. And I'm, I'm willing to accept that because I think these are good, uh, good men that are involved. But when you've got a multi-million dollar corporation like Lifeway that has policies that allow one individual to make a million dollar commitment like that, my response is, if that's what your policies allow, that is proof. That's prima facie evidence that we have a broken system. And, and it doesn't help that this particular trustee has a book deal uh, with Lifeway which is a violation of the bylaws of the Southern Baptist Convention. Trustees are not allowed by the governing documents of the SBC to receive direct or indirect financial benefit from the entity upon who, uh, which board uh, they sit. And, and, and I would just add this one last thing, Alan. Uh, in February, in an open session of the executive committee, when this question came up, how do you have a trustee uh, that has a book deal with your entity and uh, that seems to be in violation of the SBC governing documents. The answer that was given by the president of Lifeway, who, again, Dr. Ben Mandrell, is a very gracious, stalwart leader. And I thank the Lord uh, for his leadership. But the answer that was given is that Lifeway believes that that arrangement is OK as long as it is disclosed. Well, I believe in disclosure, but that's not what the governing documents of the Southern Baptist Convention say. Uh, our bylaws say that. A trustee cannot receive any type of direct or indirect benefit from the entity upon whose board they sit. And there's no caveat given that, you know, it's okay so long as it's disclosed. And this is just one, um, one example. But, but I think it goes back to the election of the president. And here's what I mean by that. Um, part of the problem is we have too many leaders across the SBC who come from the same institutional and relational stream. Uh, I said to another podcast that the problem in the family tree of SBC leadership is that the branches don't have enough forks in them. And that just, just simply doesn't bode well for accountability when it's people who've known each other, they've been best friends, served on staff and on faculties and things like that together. That just does not bode well uh, in any situation in my congregation, my local church, your local churches, that does not bode well for transparency and accountability. So real quickly, what can be done? Well, the president uh, appoints the committee on committees, which then nominates the committee on nominations, which then nominates the board members and the SBC messengers have to approve that list. And so one of the things to which I would be committed is to putting people in that process who share these concerns and who are committed uh, to having trustees who are uh, who understand that they hold that entity in trust for the churches of the Southern Baptist convention. Well, that's what I was going to, maybe this is kind of backing up a little bit with the trustee. I imagine that most Southern Baptists who would listen to this podcast understand what we're talking about with trustees, mm -hmm. but basically uh, it's Southern Baptist polity that the local church, there's no authority outside the local church. And so these trustees, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of saying this, but I'm also asking you to clarify for us. Uh, these trustees represent, they are to represent the local churches. Uh, they are to, to express the, 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 the wishes, if you will, of the local churches rather than working for the entities. Like it almost seems today like it's backwards. Like they're working Correct. for the entities to express 
um, the entity's wishes to the local churches when really it's, it's backwards. Am I thinking of that correctly? No, Alan, I think you're exactly right. And, and we have a couple of logistical challenges in this. Uh, some of it is because some of our entity boards only meet uh, two or three times a year. And uh, you blow into town on a, you get a Monday night flight into uh, wherever that entity uh, board meeting is going to be, whether that's in Nashville or uh, in Fort Worth or Louisville, wherever it may be. And of course, these days, a lot of it happens by Zoom uh, conference calls. But you come in on a Monday afternoon, you have a Monday night session and a most of a Tuesday session, and a lot of business gets transacted in a very short period of time, and it's presented to you. And this is nobody's fault. This is not a character attack, but it's presented to you uh, by these entity heads who remain some of the most famous, powerful, and influential people in the Southern Baptist Convention. And they've given you this, uh, they've given you this nice coffee mug and a leather embossed portfolio for your yellow legal pad uh, that can only be, you know, gotten and you you have the expense account. And there's a there's a bit of whining and dining aspect to it, minus the wine, of course, mm-hmm. as teetotaling Southern mm-hmm. Baptist. But um, you, you have very little actual time to make very important, weighty decisions. And uh, I can tell you firsthand, as a trustee, when you go to these meetings, you trust that the, that the employees, the entity leadership, working together with the officers of that board, that they've done all this background and there's a, there's a high level of deference uh, to that. And sometimes that process simply does not serve us well. Uh, in, in my own local church, I try to involve a lot of people in financial decisions and big, bold decisions that will impact the future of the congregation. And uh, I think sometimes our system, the way it's set up, just does not serve us well logistically in that regard. There are three other candidates for the SBC presidents, uh, Ed Linton, Randy Adams, and Dr. Al Moeller. To me, being that Dr. Moeller is the president of the Southern Seminary, is that not a conflict of interest of him being the president of the Southern Baptist itself? I've, I've heard that. Um, we have a phrase for that in Arkansas. It's called the good old boy system. <laughs> it's where, and I, I, I don't. The fox watching the hen. Well, I'm just, hey, I'm a backwoods Baptist, okay? Let me put this in layman's terms. You got a guy that's in the system who's now going to be the president of the system who's going to appoint people who appoint people to the board that approves him in the system. This is, this is kind of a circular thing yeah. just from the layman's terms, looking in things. Yeah. Uh, you want to speak to that, Mike? Yeah, Harold, I, I agree with your assessment of that. I, I want to be clear that there is no bylaw violation of that. There is nothing in our governing documents that say that an entity head cannot simultaneously serve as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But I would contend that there probably should be. I think in most organizations you have uh, nepotism clauses, you have conflicts of interest uh, clauses. But uh, as you just stated, the president of the SBC has an indirect but a very real level of influence over who will ultimately sit on the board to which he is accountable. And uh, I don't know how uh, with a straight face that anyone can say that that is not a conflict of interest. I say that is a textbook example. If I were teaching in a local college about what conflicts of interest are, this would be the very kind of example that I would use. I I think I mentioned in uh, our previous time on the podcast that my wife is the godliest person that I know, but it would be a conflict of interest for her to sit on our personnel committee, much less to chair our personnel committee and try to give 
a supposedly objective review of what my salary should be. That is a conflict of interest on its face. Uh, We also have another uh, candidate uh, who is the uh, CEO, the executive director of one of our uh, state conventions, a regional convention. The um, uh, Randy Adams is uh, the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention. So mm-hmm. he's he's not an SBC employee, but he is the employee of a state convention which receives money uh, uh, through various cooperative agreements. You have another candidate, uh, Dr. Litton, whose wife is an employee of the North American Mission Board. And so, again, uh, those are not character statements, but it is to say that it's hard to uh, have reform and a true outside voice uh, if you are in some way on the denominational payroll. Man, Wade, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we've got to break this podcast right here and save the second half for next time. I tell you what, this first half has been so good, and I'm looking forward to the next half of this uh, interview. One of the things for me, every time we get together and talk to him, I just leave so encouraged. I'm so, I, it's just refreshing to hear someone in Southern Baptist leadership that carries the same convictions as most of the Southern Baptist people I know. So yes, be sure and tune back in next time and catch the second half where we will talk about primarily his role as the chairman of the executive committee and what all that entails and all the stuff that he went through uh, in serving there. Yes, thanks again for listening to the Patriot Pastors Podcast.